Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. I spent a little bit more time on this in the first service than I'm going to right now, but I just want to remind you that whenever somebody stands up here or you listen to somebody on the radio or watch somebody on TV or whatever you do, whenever somebody is speaking to you, whether they're a news pundit, a sportscaster, um, or a preacher, it's first of all your responsibility as the listener to be open, especially when it comes to the Word of God, to be open to let God speak to you, regardless of whether or not you even like the speaker. You know, I know how people are, right? We have a tendency to judge by what we see. And uh, sometimes we, there's a vibe about a person that speaks and we're like, I don't really like that person. They're not really my cup of tea. But God can still speak to you through the most unlikely vessels. I mean, he's been speaking to you through me for years and that's really a miracle. It's true. If you knew who I was, right? Where I came from. Secondly, I want to remind you that you have a responsibility to always test and prove what is preached to you according to Scripture, to weigh it, right, to make sure that you're not just, you know, kind of opening up and taking everything in without using discernment. I'm not talking about being critical just for criticism's sake. I'm not just talking about sitting out there and being like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, that, that's wrong, you know. But I, I mean taking an attitude of how does this measure what we know about the character and the nature of Jesus Christ through Scripture? And what do we see about God in the Bible? And how do we compare that to what I'm hearing right now? So just, you know, keep your, stay awake, right? Stay awake and alert and listen with ears to hear. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen? Okay, today we're going to continue the series we started called New. And my message today is an exchanged life is a new life. I want to share with you today about this biblical concept of exchange, that you have exchanged your former life for the life of God. You haven't just enhanced it, you haven't just improved it, but God has actually done something in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ to exchange your old sinful life for a new life, and that new life is actually the life of Jesus Christ. That's what happened in the gospel. So we start today with the key scripture text that we've been using the last several, several weeks, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and I'd like to read it to you, and many of you will be aware of it by now, uh, but it says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anybody here in this room consider themselves to be in Christ? Okay. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. We know the word he there is a gender neutral pronoun that can mean a person, right? So they, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now I've started out these last three weeks by asking this question. Has this scripture text been your experience? Has this been your experience? Are you new yet? Did something happen to you 
When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, but not only the Savior of the world, my Lord, my Savior, and you said, forgive me, cleanse me, move into my life and change me, did something happen to you? Did something change within you? Did you find that you began to desire new things and despise things you used to love? Did something happen? And if nothing happened like that, even a little bit, if nothing happened, it's really important that you be sure that you didn't just check off some boxes and go through mental ascent. You didn't just agree with some facts and go through mental ascent, but that you actually encountered a living person. And that living person moved into you and your body became the household, the dwelling place of God. Remember I shared with you that if somebody moves into your house, if somebody lives with you, you know they're there. They're moving around, you're hearing footsteps, right? They're using your bathroom, they're using your kitchen, right? People, you know when somebody moves into your house. And the same is true when God moves into your house. You know He's living there. And if you recognize that it doesn't seem like anybody's living there, that's important. You need to recognize that and bring that to God and say, Lord, I want to know you're here. I want to know you've moved in. Amen? Now, the big idea today, if you're taking notes, is simply this. An exchanged life that has encountered Jesus is a new life. An exchanged life that has encountered Jesus is a new life. And so let's get right into it. My first point today is simply this. Our identity, your identity, my identity is Christ himself, the power of an exchanged life. And, you know, when you first come to Christ, the starting point of the Christian life at conversion can really be wrapped up in this verse here in Galatians 2.20, and I want you to see it with me. I'm going to read it in the ESV and the New Living Translation, but look what it says. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, that means the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. New Living Translation. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I remember years ago, a guy said, did you know that Paul's dad was crucified next to Jesus? And I said, no, where do you find that? He said, Paul said, my old man's been crucified with Christ. I'm like, oh, that's bad. That's terrible. So think about what we just, I know, boo, right? Think about what we just read. Paul says this, and he's speaking for us. He says, I, you, us, have been crucified with Christ. This is not just a nice thought or principle. This is not just a legal reality. This is total reality and truth. You have been crucified. I know you didn't experience the pain of it in a physical way, but You've been crucified. The scripture teaches that we're dead. How many of you know people didn't live through crucifixion? 
It had a 100% mortality rate. Think about the gospel. The gospel is teaching us that Jesus did not just die to forgive your sin, but you were in him when he hung upon the cross. That's really important. To recognize that an actual death took place. Because if you know anything about crucifixion in the ancient world, you know that it was brutal. You see, when people were crucified in the Roman world, their bodies were left on the cross. And their bodies rotted. Birds of the air came and landed on their bodies and plucked and picked away at them. And in front of the whole world, they were displayed as an enemy of the state, as the worst of criminals, and as deserving of the most shameful, horrific, painful way to go. That's what crucifixion was. Now Jesus was taken down earlier from the cross because the Sabbath was there, but we know they inserted a sword in his side and blood and water flowed out and he was shown to be dead. Crucifixion wasn't something you came back from. Crucifixion wasn't something that you woke up from, that you revived in the coolness of a tomb from. And yet the scripture teaches that you and I died in Christ, that an actual death took place. And then Paul says, so I no longer live. We no longer live. You and I have died. You and I are dead people. Our previous life is over. Settle it. Quit trying to carry around that old dead person. This is really important because, you know, over the years I've noticed something. I I see people have a genuine encounter with Christ and then, you know, difficulties come and life knocks you around and you get beat up a bit and all of us can go through these seasons. But if we're not careful, we begin in those seasons of darkness or discouragement or doubt or loss. We begin to kind of inch back to maybe there's something back there in the old way that has life for me. Maybe drinking a little bit again. Maybe, you know, maybe a little bit more sexual excitement. Maybe those things. Maybe giving my life and my energy no longer to the pursuit of God, but toward things that we know bring death. And I've seen it many times. I've seen Christians, after they've had a genuine encounter with Christ, they go back to the graveyard and they dig up their previous life and they take that old rotted corpse and they put it on themselves and they carry it around as their identity. And let me just beg you, don't go back and dig up the dead. Don't bring back your old life. You have a new life. That old person's dead. You've had a divine exchange happen and it's beautiful. The very life of God has come to dwell in you. I've shared this quote with you before from mere Christianity, but C.S. Lewis says this. This is what God says to us. Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your talents and money, so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I've not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them over to me, give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become 
your heart. See, that's the goal of the Christian life, that we embrace a new kind of life and we go through a divine exchange and we give God our garbage, our selfishness, our sin, our past, our failures, our shame, all the stuff that we, don't, we would never stand up in front and tell the world about, all the stuff of our secret life, we give it all to Him. And in response, He gives us His life. And the beauty is, is that life actually moves in and inhabits us. And that life is holy. And that life looks like God. I want that kind of life, don't you? And here's the beautiful thing we don't understand is we think sometimes that if we give our life to God, if we embrace the cross, if we have faith to enter into that divine exchange, that somehow that's going to take our joy away. That it's going to be a bummer to follow God. That that divine exchange, that loss of the old and that gain of the new, gaining of the new, is, is that really worth it, Lord? We don't understand. The greatest joy, the greatest pleasure, the greatest happiness you were created for was to embrace the life that God has for you. That's where true joy is. It's not in trying to kind of have a little mixture of both. It's in embracing his life for you. Why is that? Because he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows how he made you. He knows your gifts, your talents, your personality, the way that you've been blended together. He knows your character qualities. He knows everything about you, and he knows how he weaved you together in your mother's womb, knit you together in your mother's womb. He's watched you your whole life. He's blessed you and poured gifts and abilities into you. And so to go the way that he's created you is to go in the way you were made for, the very way you were fashioned. And he knows how to take the dead part of that and kill it and then bring his own life into you and out of you live a unique life. That's why your life in Christ is going to look different than mine. That's why your journey, your journey is unique and beautiful. Nobody has ever been like you. And the life that God has for you is the only life that will really give you true joy, true happiness, true pleasure is in being who God created you to be in Christ. Does that make sense? And then Paul says, Christ lives in me. And I've been saying that for the last several minutes, but we want him to live in, his, in us and live his life out and give us that new identity. Aren't we living in a time when people are struggling with identity? Look all around us. Society is confused. We don't even know which way is up anymore. We're redefining everything. And we've always only been made for God. And our truest identity is found in Him. Amen? If you really want to know who you are, find Him. Or I should say, let Him find you. Or I should say, He's found you. Amen? You know, I have a short little testimony I want to share with you from my own life. Right after I came to Christ, I had a really dramatic conversion. I know not everybody has that. Not everybody's coming out of deep, dark sin. Some were raised in the church, and you have to go through your own battles with self-righteousness or whatever it may be, pride, or just thinking you're okay because you're a Christian and because you were raised a Christian. Once a Christian, always a Christian. Maybe that's your story. You need Christ just as much as the person who's coming out of the gutter. But I almost came out of the gutter. You know, I was out on my own as a teenager, addicted and and at 16, I overdosed and almost died, and I was living crazy, and a woman had taken me and my girlfriend in, and we were living there, and, 
And then after that relationship blew apart, I had this dramatic turnaround in Christ. Right after I had this dramatic turnaround and Jesus became real to me, I went to see a movie with two of my friends, my old party friends. And uh, I'm going to really date myself here, but the movie we went to see was the first Terminator movie. It had just come out, the fall of 1984. And you know where we went to see it? A drive-in theater. (laughs) And some of the younger people are like, what? What's that? Right? And so we're at this drive-in. We're sitting in my buddy's car. I'm in the back seat. I'm with two friends. We're watching the Terminator. And all of a sudden, my buddy up front pulls out a mirror and a rolled-up bill and some cocaine, and he puts it on the mirror, and he starts chopping it up, and he lines out some lines. And then he snorts that up, and he hands the mirror to my other buddy, and he snorts that up, and then he hands the mirror back to me in the back seat. And I've just come to Christ. I'm having this moment, right? And here comes the mirror, and it's right in front of me. I haven't grabbed it yet. I'm looking at it. And at that moment, something inside of me said this, that's not you anymore. I heard the voice of God inside of me, that's not you anymore. And I knew at that moment the Holy Spirit was bearing witness. As Romans eight sixteen says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. At that moment, the Holy Spirit was showing me, that's not your identity. You have a new identity. And I just said to them, it's all right, guys, that's not me anymore. I didn't say, oh, you guys are going to hell. How dare you pass that back here, you filthy sinners, addicts. I didn't say that. I just said, that's not me anymore. And I handed it back to him. Amen. Now, I want you to know that wasn't me and my willpower. Because I was, I'm one of those people that not everybody experiences this. There were other areas of my life that took a long process But when it came to addiction to substances, it was instantaneous for me. There's other things that were not instantaneous. I mean, to be candid, sexual things. Those were a long, strong, I mean, that was a, a battle. That was a battle. Still a battle to this day. That's the reality. But the addiction thing was like, boom, I'm free. God's done something in me. I don't even desire that anymore. Why? Because I had a new identity, not because of my willpower, because somebody was living inside of me and speaking inside of me and saying, that's not you anymore. This is who you are now. Amen? Look at what Colossians 3, 3, and 4 says, and I'm in the same place I was last service. I'm going to move quickly. So, For you have died. Notice this, and your life is hidden with Christ In God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Again, Paul says you're dead. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you know there is no safer place in all the universe than your life in Christ? Right? Nothing can touch you unless it moves through him. Think about that. And Christ, who is your life, Think about that. Christ is your life. True Christianity is not an enhanced life, but an exchanged life. Jesus didn't come to improve you and your life and to make you successful. And I hear people talk about the gospel sometimes, like the gospel is, you know, 
you need to add a little bit of spirituality to your life because, you know, like I remember going years ago to, you know, uh, multi-level marketing meetings. Anybody else ever been to one of those? Listen, I'm not slamming them all, so just don't take it that way. But I remember going to this thing, and, you know, one of the big appeals is, is they will always bring God into the mix and say, you know, if you're, you know, God wants you to prosper. He wants you to be wealthy so you can, you, you know, use it for his purpose and his glory. So you just have to have your life in proper order. You know, you have to have God and, and then, you know, you know your family and, and, and then, you know, and they lay out this, this kind of this list. And, and basically the idea is if you get involved in the MLM and keep, you know, God as a priority in your life, God will make you successful, and others will see your successful life, and they'll want to be a part of that successful life, and they'll join your downline. Ooh, am I being too real here? But the reality is, is God doesn't want to make you a success, not as you currently stand. He wants to kill that. He wants to kill that and give you His life. And it's so important that we re- recognize this. The, the Christian, listen, if, if you're like a person that's checking out Christianity, checking out the church, checking out the gospel to kind of get, you know, what, what is this about? What's this religion thing about? Let me just tell you this. The Christian life is the most wearying, depressing, difficult life that you can ever live if you try to do it in your own wisdom and strength. And I've watched people do it. I'm going to be better. I'm going to go to church and be good. I'm going to be like those people without a change from within. And so they show up and they're trying good works and they're trying to be better people and they find that the same ugly thing inside of them keeps coming out. You just can't do it. It's impossible. Why? Because the standard is the perfection and the beauty of Jesus Christ himself. And I'll tell you, just give it up right now. If you think, <laughs> if you think you're going to be like Jesus because you're smart or cool or good looking or a pretty good person, let me just tell you right now, you are doomed to fail. And you'll find yourself despising the so-called, I tried that, it didn't work for me. You didn't try it. You don't try Jesus. I'm going to tell you, when Jesus comes into your life, he will rock your world. He'll move into your house. He'll start a renovation project, and it will be lifelong. He changes you from the inside out, not the outside in. It's not about your behavior. Behavior follows transformation. People think that that's what Christianity is. It's like a new behavior thing. A turn, a, turn, your leaf, turn a new leaf over. Become good. That's the biggest bunch of bunk. That moralistic lie. Moralism won't save you. Being a good person won't save you. There's a lot of good people sitting in churches that might be in an eternity apart from Christ. That might be damned in the end. We need to meet Him. To see Him. To have Him move in and transform us. Amen? I have such a great story to illustrate this. Can I take you there fast? Okay. So let's look at an example here. Luke chapter 19, 1 through 10, a story that many of you will be familiar with, a guy named Zacchaeus. Let's read it, and then I'll just quickly move through it. I want you to see what happened to Zacchaeus. 
Verse 1 says, he entered Jericho, that's Jesus, and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when, he saw, when they saw it, they, the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, this story is so powerful because we see what happens when a person really sees who Jesus is and they encounter grace. So let's just break it down. First of all, Zacchaeus was a bad man. He was a sinner of epic proportion. You think you're bad? He's way badder. See, if you don't know the background, you might not understand that a chief tax collector was kind of a boss over other tax collectors, and he was Jewish, and he's living in his own land, and the Romans are occupying his land, and he's working for the Romans to extract taxes from his own brothers and sisters, his own family, his own nation. And not only is he extracting the Roman taxes from them, but he's adding on a commission. And then on top of the commission, he's cheating behind the scenes and getting a little bit more money out of people. And then he's taking that money and he's investing it. And he's making bank off of the oppression of his own people. Tax collectors were the most hated people. Did you know that the Jewish law, I mean, the rabbis of that time considered, sorry, the rabbis of that time considered that tax collectors were beyond redemption. They considered tax collectors to be damned without hope, beyond repair, never to be saved and rescued. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with. He defrauded his own people, but he wanted to see Jesus. That's interesting. Why? A couple of possible reasons. First one might be curiosity. He wanted to maybe see the show and see the signs. Jesus' reputation had spread, and how many of you know it would be pretty cool to watch a, a lame person walk, a deaf person hear, a blind person see? And so in Israel, a lot of people were showing up to the show. Come on, Jesus. Is he going to multiply some loaves and fishes today? Maybe he'll walk on water. I hear he's raised some dead people. I hope to be there today when he does it. Or maybe there was already a work of God happening inside of his heart, prevening it grace. It's possible, maybe probable, that God was already drawing Zacchaeus and preparing him for this day. He may have begun to feel remorse and regret for his sin. He may have wanted to see Jesus because he'd heard Jesus was merciful and offered sinners like him hope. That's speculative, but I like it. And then what you find in the story is that a changed life like this always begins with seeing Jesus. He's willing to take drastic measures to see him. He climbs up in a tree. What are you willing to do? 
to get to Jesus, right? And so he climbs up in a tree. I want to see him. All I want to do is see him. If I can see him, maybe something will happen. And he climbs up in the tree. And here's the thing is a, a changed life. Yes, you seeing the Lord is important, but the beautiful part of the story is Jesus saw him. That's when a life really changes, when Jesus fixes his eyes and his attention on you. And I want to tell you, and I was aware of this when I was preparing, there are people here today, and I want you to know something. You're right at the stage in life. You've been climbing up the tree. You've been doing a little bit of seeking, knocking, and asking. You're wondering, and you're in the perfect place right now, and I want you to know, you think that you're trying to get to him, but he's already got his eyes fixed on you. Today's your day. It's your day to encounter him, to know him. And then one of the things you see that's so powerful is Jesus accepted and favored him enough to go to his house. Now, you and I read the story, and we don't understand. That was a huge cultural taboo for a rabbi, for a clean Jew, to ever go into a sinner's house. See, they believed in that time that if you were a rabbi, a religious leader, if you even were around a Gentile, a Roman, if you were around a tax collector, if you even came into proximity to a prostitute or people that were just bad people, if you even got close to them, their uncleanness would get on you and you would be ceremonially unclean and you couldn't be near to God. So they would never hang out with sinners. But Jesus went right to his home. Jesus demonstrated love, acceptance, mercy, and grace when he asked if he could go to his home. See, Zacchaeus would have been used to being rejected by rabbis, religious people, and a majority of the religious people, just Jewish people that lived around him. When Jesus asked to go to his home, it would have been an act of mercy, acceptance, love, grace, beyond anything that Zacchaeus would have expected. In that one request of Jesus, so many things were communicated to Zacchaeus. And so... What does Zacchaeus do? And by the way, let me just say this. Uh, When's the last time you befriended a sinner? Seriously. See, what we do is we sit on social media and we lob our anger at the groups and the people that are taking America down. We get on social media and we pointedly go after different people and groups and we call it evil and bad and that's what's wrong with our country them they us them that's what we do and we think we're doing a service and it's really helping people it's not it's not helping people at all we're cursing the darkness and expecting it to change the only way darkness ever changes is when light encounters it And baby, you and I are the light. Come on, somebody. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. If we want lives to change, if we want people to know about the God who transforms people, we have to put ourselves out there with people. Am I talking to anybody? So what does Zacchaeus do? He receives Jesus joyfully. In response to this love and grace, it says he received him joyfully. I love the language. When someone values you with grace, mercy, kindness, forgiveness... Love, joy will spill out of your soul. And that became his evidence. And his repentance, he repents and he restores because he saw and believed. There were no tears in Zacchaeus' repentance. Some people say, unless you're really crying, snot's coming out of your nose, and you're really down there at the altar pouring out your heart, you're not really changing. There's nothing in the Bible that necessarily indicates that. In this case, 
the response that proved he truly repented was joy and, hey, Jesus, I just want you to know I'm going to take care of the poor and I'm going to restore everything I've ever ripped off from people, not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but four times over. But you would say, oh, by the way, he, there was no sinner's prayer either. He didn't follow the pattern, the formula. You never see him, you never see Jesus say, okay, I'll tell you what, there's Zacchaeus. Stop with me right now. Let's take hands and pray. Pray this prayer after me. By the way, I'm not saying I'm against sinners' prayers. I'm really not. If there's a genuine repentance, God will use it. What I am saying is, please, let's not put God in this little box. The reality is what happens afterward, the change, the response, the repentance. There's no sinner's prayer. And what happens? Jesus declares that Zacchaeus was saved and sought for. He says he's saved. Now, let's be clear about something, because some of us might read this wrong. It looks like his behavior caused Jesus to say you're saved. That's not it at all. Jesus showed him favor and love, that's called grace, came to his home, accepted him and loved him, broke down the cultural taboos and barriers, and now that grace has rocked him and he's seen the real Jesus, he doesn't know what to do, but he realizes, I've been a sinner, I've been ripping people off, I've been tearing down my nation, I've been hurting people, i got to make this right, because that's what repentance does. It seeks to make right where it's been wrong. And he says, Jesus, I just want to let you know, no longer am I going to use my power to rip people off, I'm going to use my power now to be a blessing to the world, and I'm going to make sure the poor are taken care of and I'm going to restore four times as much to everybody that I've ever taken from. Now that is a response to grace that's beautiful and powerful. And so what do we see? Jesus came in to his life and he was changed. He became new. Something happened. He was changed to be more like Jesus because he saw what Jesus was really like. He exchanged his life. Here's my old tax collector, sinner, rip people off, take advantage of people, bring pain into the world self. Jesus, I'm going to give that to you. And now I'll take your life that cares for the poor, that restores the broken. I'll take that life, Jesus. And that's what happened in that story. And that's what God wants to do with all of us in this room. So back to the initial question. Did you become new when you first believed? Or as you've been believing, are you getting newer and newer? Right, the marketing world has ripped off God's plan. New and improved. No. New and exchanged. Completely new. Unlike anything you've ever had before. Amen.